I love the world you live in where <laughs> Rachel Maddow is like, did you see the shoes Rachel Maddow was wearing today? No, I think it was. I love it. It's just the world where it's like, Rachel Maddow was wearing tailored trousers. So I went out and got tailored trousers. Like, that's the world that Zachary. My thesis is that other news anchors copied her chunky glasses. And then <laughs> from there, it, it escalated. She's a trendsetter and she doesn't get enough credit for it. That's all I'm saying. Well, Jessica and Zach, from the day they were born, they started watching comedy because it was on. She was a golden girl, he had Seinfeld on the brain. They said a nine-year-old Frasier fan might just be insane. Harry and the Hendersons, Mindy and Mork. Now Jessica and Zach get together and talk. They'll never say the sitcom's glory days are gone. They'll still watch it because it was on. Because it was on. Because it was on Because it was on Because it was on Is it too early to set up a Patreon? And I'll call it Because it was on 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 Hello and welcome to Because It Was On We're like that fancy film podcast but for people who like to talk about that episode of Even Stevens where it is canonically revealed that Beans is an alien Hey dad, that was a close one, huh? We take a look at the history and social politics of your favorite sitcoms with varying degrees of seriousness. I'm Jessica, and I mistook my wealthy friend's priceless tapestry for scrap fabric and used it to make us matching outfits for our ABBA medley for the talent show. And I'm Zach, and my boss has taken us to a cattle ranch for a team building exercise this week. This is our 13th team building exercise in the last year, and I haven't been to the office in nine months. At this point, <laughs> I think I'm just in a cult. So, Jessica, gotta ask you, what are we talking about this week? What are we talking about this week? If anybody was going to be accidentally in a cult, it would be you. I'm surprised that I haven't ballyhooed my way into a cult already. <laughs> <laughs> like, you would definitely accidentally join at first, and then... You definitely have a like a you can't tell me what to do streak that cult leaders don't like. This is true. I but, would immediately be like, you're not my dad. But I do think you try to stick around for the tea for as long as possible. Mm, yeah. <laughs> We've talked about me being a compulsive joiner in uh, college. And one, one episode of that is I joined an organization called Stitch and Bitch. Where we, where we would just like knit together and talk about gossip. And it was like me and six educated ladies. And we would just talk about our lives. I'm sad that didn't escalate into a cult because I feel like that would have been a good, a good vibe. Good did cult. anyone in the group, like, did anybody have the potential to like, you feel like elevate to the cult leader status? Haley was in the group briefly. Yes. Ah, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I'll, I'll ask again, Jessica. What <laughs> are we talking yeah. about this week? 
Well, Zachary, we are doing our next and I believe final, we'll see, but I think final installment in our Because It Was On Generations series. Uh, this has been a series where we've reviewed the major living generations today and talked about their influences on sitcoms and sitcoms influences on them. That, that push and pull that we always talk about here because it was on. And so we did the boomers. Gosh, what a fun time we had there. Mm. We did Gen X and wow, aren't they cool? And now we arrive at the generation that you and I call home. If we had just been born just a few years later, we would have had 20 more years of youth, Jessica, because we would be Gen Z. <laughs> We're so close. We are. We could have been call? elder Gen Zers. We're pretty close. We're like the last five years that it is to be a millennial. And we're the last third of millennials. We're baby millennials. So now we don't have youth. We just have everyone telling us we're doing makeup wrong on TikTok. Yep. And we're, we're doing millennial pauses. We're apparently responsible for like realtors doing gray floors and walls. Gray oh, no, everything. That's not on us. That's not on us. My walls are currently gray right this second. It is how I bought this house. Um, Hold up. Strap in, Jessica, because I ran across the take of all takes on, like, somebody on TikTok was, like, doing a takedown of the millennial great. And I was like, I'm sorry. That's, they were like, that's blood libel. No. (laughs) We did not do millennial great. It was the boomers. And they're the ones that created the real estate situation where suddenly your house was a commodity that you wanted to rise in prices and stuff. And it became like an investment and therefore nobody wanted to take any risks or do anything interesting with their houses. That's all boomers. And therefore millennials, we rent, we rent. So it's it's not fucking us. We're not the ones doing it. That's boomer gray. It's boomer gray folks. As I sit in a gray house, but to be fair, I didn't paint that. And yeah. it is my New Year's resolution to slowly chip away at the millennial boomer gray it's the boomer in my gray. house. I'm slowly chipping away at it. I was telling you before we started, I have painted my bathroom like a burnt orangey color. I'm going to paint the cabinets in there like a dark yellow to match. It's going to be groovy. It's going to be funky. It, we're going to love it. Yeah, I rent and I still painted all of my yeah, every rooms. every week I look at this dark blue wall and I do think, my God, I do not envy who like whoever has to put seven coats of primer to cover that color up. Me, I'm going to get that deposit back. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be so many coats of primer. Millennials, sitcoms. Okay, so where we last yes. left off with our heroes, Gen X had essentially... They were depressed, folks. They were sad about life. They were apathetic. They were over it. They were the slackers. They were the never sell out generation. And at the same time, millennials, they were little kids. They were going through the complete opposite media experience. Opposite media experience. We were not watching Daria. We were a couple channels away on the Disney Channel. Yeah, um, it w- really was like in media for like things targeted towards media. It was this utopian 
sort of vision that they were presenting to us. Um, in the 90s, there was actually like a lot of diversity that you that like a surprising amount of diversity when you think back of the 90s that really dipped off later. But there was yeah. this very like particular kind of 90s diversity that wasn't always great. <laughs> like they were trying their best, but like when they would do a street gang in Los Angeles, it would like be this like rainbow of all nationalities. One of each. Yeah. One of each. Yeah. We're not saying nothing. We peaked with 90s diversity with the Brandy Cinderella. Yeah. That yep. was the peak. That was the pinnacle. We made it to the mountaintop, everyone. If you have not seen it, there is a Disney version of the musical, the stage musical of Cinderella, starring Brandy as Cinderella, Whitney Houston as the fairy godmother, and then we have Victor Garber as the king and Whoopi Goldberg as the queen. And then their footman is played by Jason Alexander. Babe. Our, our culture, like, it was never going to get any better than when Whoopi Goldberg was, like, the hottest shit in Hollywood. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Honestly, like, Sister Act has been having a big moment with the people in my office recently. Mm -hmm. We've really been on a Sister Act kick. Somebody made a bunch of slack emojis that are just nuns from Sister Act. And we've been gobbling them up. Yeah, I mean, they're seminal classics. They're beautiful. It was Whoopi Goldberg. What a random... It's so strange that Whoopi Goldberg That Whoopi Goldberg was, was like, yeah. the hotness. Was the hotness? Like, her schedule was full, baby. She, she was, was working. booked. She was booked. And we love it. We love to see Whoopi Goldberg up on the silver screen. Let's get her paid again. Yep, we need to bring it back. There needs to be a second Whoopi Sans. Yeah, no, she's got that ass glued to the chair at The View. She said, yeah. I'm going to show up and work for two hours a day, and y'all going to let me rake in the cheddar? Okay, fine. If Okay, if we're going to fix America, one thing that we need to do is we need to get Whoopi off of a show where we're asking her opinion on things every, week, every day. Uh, actually true, because if there's <laughs> one thing that's ruined Whoopi Goldberg for me, it is watching The View. Yeah, because I don't need to know what she's thinking about stuff. I just need her to do Sister Act three. Yeah, so it was obviously this utopian vision in media. It's like the other side of the end of history equation of just like we're little kids, and so we just get like institutions telling us that everything's perfect, everything is very well managed in the world, and we you don't need to worry about anything. The 90s was inundated with like this aesthetic in children's media called utopian scholastic. It's like what of all, all of our textbooks were in this aesthetic. It's like clip art and it's like floating in the sky with like clouds and like you have like clip art of like the sphinx, the sphinx and then like apples and stuff. And it's just mm -hmm. this very like dreamy I'm aesthetic. There, baby. I am yeah. there. And yeah. to finally bring up sitcoms, this aesthetic was used in the Sister Sister intro, where it's just like a lot of like floating in space. Clarissa explains it all. Also like floating in space with like all of these like dreamy things happening. It was just a very fun, consequence-free time to grow up as a millennial and at least in our media. 
I think we should. Yeah, we had we had great media. And growing up as a millennial, we really got the benefit of like cable explosion. So by the 90s, cable was pretty ubiquitous. Like even mm-hmm. if you didn't have cable, your family probably had like a basic package where you had like 60 channels, right? Like basic cable. And so that's still a lot. And it's enough that like I remember the day, the very day that my family got the Disney Channel because we had just like basic network television. And then I remember like the dish being installed outside of the house. And we expanded from like basic network television to basic cable or basic satellite package. And it included the Disney Channel. Ah, and baby, Jessica was born that day. I was born that day. And so we had this explosion of cable channels. And when you have all of these channels, it's going to lead to a lot more specification and niche markets on what is being created, what content's being created for who. And so you get really like, we talked about with Gen X, a lot more television being created for children. But now with cable, you have entire networks, multiples of them dedicating 24 hours of their content to creating things for kids. And the Disney Channel especially, I think, gets a lot of the credit here for building out just a shitload, like a whole roster of sitcoms for kids and tweens. And that's really the the sitcom starter kit right there. Yeah, absolutely. Nickelodeon, of course, would be the other big name. You get things like just Dana Schneider's Playhouse. And so the interesting thing about the Disney Channel in particular is that they did not sell advertising space to outsiders. And so it was just one long commercial for the Disney empire. They did a lot of like selling their child actors to you of just like getting you very invested in these actors. They would do these bumpers where they would repeat again and again the name of the actor just to like see what stuck. Hilary Duff, um, Christy Carlson Romano, who was Ren and Stevens. Yeah, Miley Cyrus. It was just like a factory for like trying to get celebrity going. Hey, I'm Demi Lovato from Sunny with a Chance. And you're watching Disney Channel. Hey, what's up? I'm Miley Cyrus from Hannah Montana. And you are watching Disney Channel. I'm America Ferrer from Gotta Kick It Up, and you're watching Disney Channel. Hi, I'm Raven from That's So Raven, and you're watching Disney Channel. Which sometimes ended well, and sometimes otherwise. Nickelodeon was different. It did have commercials. For um, sure, yeah. For sure, yeah. Uh, and they Nickelodeon were loud. magazine, please. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, Nerf. Nerf, water guns. They had so many... Kids, kids, you don't even know how many water guns they had in the 90s. It was insane. Like, it was... The technology. All of the people that were, like, doing an arms races in the Cold War. uh, (laughs) When the Berlin Wall fell, they suddenly were out of the job, and they just started doing water guns. (laughs) And, you know, for as much as Disney sitcoms were impactful on us, and I really think they were, right? Because I do think the Disney model of 
diversity and inclusion really did feed the millennial brain quite a bit. And and like, I think not a bad way as we aged. I think very impactful for us was also Nickelodeon at the time. And specifically because Nickelodeon did this thing where at a certain time they just like stopped their super child focused programming and they put on Nick at Night, which was just old sitcoms. Yeah. So Disney Channel had Sister Sister. It had Smart Guy. Um, incredible shows. But they also had like to say to talk about diversity, like when you watch Lizzie McGuire, not a whole heck of a lot of diversity. No, um, definitely not. And like that's Lizzie that's McGuire, right even Stevens. Like I think I can only think of the villain, like Ren's nemesis was black. So there was, it did have like fantastic black sitcoms. But as far as like, you know, it's other shows like having actual diversity, it wasn't always great on that. A little bit of market segregation there happening. That's all I'm saying. You're you're absolutely not wrong. Um, that you're not wrong there. There it, we we had we had our Lizzie McGuire episode. Um, and it is not the most diverse of sitcoms of all time. Yeah. It's not up there. It's not up there. Yeah. But when we talk about sitcoms that are going to have a huge impact on millennials, we had to acknowledge, of course, the Disney Channel, of course, Nickelodeon. We have Lizzie McGuire. We have Boy Meets World, of course, playing a huge part in the development of the millennial prefrontal cortex, as we've talked about many times. But I do think that millennials really are the generation where, yes, we had niche programming, but we are the generation that was fed every other previous generation's leftovers in terms of their sitcoms. We really were that melting pot. And I'm going to introduce into the lexicon what the millennials experienced and i'm going to call it the because it was on effect yeah the the genesis of this show is this effect where again it's because of cable the market need of when you had all these different cable shows there is this rush of i gotta fill 24 hours of airtime every day and so everybody was like opening up the dusty cupboards and like (laughs) out came my dream of genie yep reruns out the ass like what are we going to do on nickelodeon we're a kids show and you know they have bedtimes so what are we going to play at three o'clock that's how nick and Knight came to be and they were welcome just to cheers yep that's um, how we learned about the cosby show but that is the because it was on effect right this is yeah. a very i think millennial experience is the because it was on effect where you have at this point 40 years or more of television content that has been produced 40 years or more of sitcoms that have been produced. You now have cable where you have a lot of options and a lot of time to fill. So we're putting all of these things on television, but what you don't yet have is the ability to watch anything you want at the click of a button immediately. So you don't get to just choose out of the ether, any fucking show, episode, whatever that you want at any given time. You are still beholden to, at max, like 150 options of what is on TV at that time. 50 of those are music channels. 
Mm-hmm. So you got a hundred things that you could watch at any given time. A third of those are news channels. Like 12 different smooth jazz channels. <laughs> yes. So when you like really get to the brass tacks of like what you, as a like 12 year old could feasibly actually watch, you only then have, let's say 20 to 25 options maybe on television. Yes, that's of course many options, but kids today now have thousands at the snap of their fingers that they could be watching, which we did not have, right? So you have this limited sphere of things, often things not made for you that you watched because it was on, which is why I think millennials are very uniquely positioned to really understand the media and the cultural influences of the generations that came previously, because we frankly just had a lot more exposure where we couldn't just opt out and watch whatever bullshit we wanted to watch. We had to adapt. Yeah, this was, you've probably had this conversation too with boomers where like, I have had many conversations where they express surprise that I am familiar with the television show. Like, how do you know what I Dream of Genie is? And like, I demonstrate that I have watched this show and it's, be- it's because it was on. It was, it, it was on an interesting thing, like a little bit of scholarship on to add to the, because it was on theory is that when you were watching cable, when you're watching cable and you would, there would be commercial breaks. And so the natural thing for someone watching to do is I'm going to flip to a different channel. Got to hit that last button. Yeah, boom, we're going, we're flipping back. But the thing is that like the TV gods, they were wise to these tricks. And so they didn't want you to change because the entire point of this whole exercise is to get you to watch advertisements. Correct. And what they did is the channels would coordinate their ad breaks. And Nickelodeon and Disney would roughly go off for ads, ad breaks at the same time, because that's the child market. And child market shows would go on to commercial at the same time. But you see, this adds a very interesting incentive for children to then move to an adult show, to adult channels, because it was a different market and therefore they were not coordinating in the same way. And what I have a lot of memories of toggling between a kid's show and like a more adult oriented show specifically because they were staggered. It was more staggered. And so I didn't have to watch any commercials. And that's how it's a big part of, I think that because it was on effect of you were incentivized to watch things outside of the child market. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you have to fill that ad break time. So you're definitely going to watch things that are outside of what you normally would You're also in the case of Nickelodeon, you're just leaving it on. And all of a sudden, you know, it's now playing Who's the Boss? So you're watching Who's the Boss? Advertisements and Nickelodeon. Advertisements and children's shows. I have this memory of one summer, I was like, I'm going to lose weight. And this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to watch TV because there's no universe where I'm not just going to watch TV all summer long. But what I'm going to do is... Every ad break, I'm just going to run around the house. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to run around the house till the commercials (laughs) go off. And so I would just like run around the house and just like peek through the kitchen window and then like keep on running. (laughs) And then like 
It would incentivize me to go faster because I was like, what if I'm missing something? Uh, There's no rewinding. So that's my fitness tip to anybody. Uh, (laughs) Anybody still watching commercials? This is the way to go. It's uh, buy my book. It'll walk you all through it. (laughs) The the thing that I, and the reason that I like coined the because it was not a fact and why I do think it's important is because I really do think it informs the, what you'll see from millennial sitcoms as we move forward. So what do I mean by that? We talk a lot about with boomer sitcoms. These are a lot more traditional family sitcoms. It's where a lot of the classic sitcom tropes come from. And really just known for like straightforward earnest heart in these shows to the point of it being almost schmaltzy Mm -hmm. whereas gen x sitcoms are a direct reaction to this we are over that and we're going to meet it with a sarcastic eye roll we're going to put on the simpsons we're going to put on married with children right We're we're rejecting your overly manufactured uh heart that boomer sitcoms were known for. And so I think when you get to millennials, um, because we consumed both things and quite a lot of both boomer and Gen X sitcoms, we were quite knowledgeable on both and it informed the types of sitcoms we created, which I think are really reflective of what I think is like the millennial ethos, which is like, We want to recognize, we know that it's a trope, right? We want to be smarter than and be self-aware about what the joke is and what we're putting on television, but we still want the heart. Give us both. And I really think that is like what you'll see from a lot of millennial television shows as we move forward. Yeah, it's, we get called out on it so much like millennial media. And rightfully, because I fucking hate it as well. Marvel does it all the time, where they'll they'll have this sort of like very tropey moment in the movie, and then someone will be like, "Oh, is this the part where you go and try to kiss me?" And then they do it. It's just like this calling out of tropes, this constant millennial meta that happens because we, that on some level, we understand that it's uncool and that it's cheesy, but we also want... Um, we want it. Yeah, we want the pathos of it. We want the... We want the heart. Yeah. And I think that, like, that's the millennial thing is, like, we know what it is. We'll tell you we know what it is. We want you to know we recognize that some shit's happening here, but we're allowing it to happen. Perhaps we're experiencing it ironically. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Big... <laughs> The, the way that millennials have rendered the word ironic completely meaningless. And it's just like, <laughs> I think meta is probably what we mostly mean. Like, we're, we're enjoying it on a meta level instead of ironically. But God, but we like we to just, say ironically. Yeah. Wearing this hat ironically. No, you're just wearing a hat, David. <laughs> As you get a little bit older, you realize that there is an age limit on wearing something ironically. After a certain age, you cannot pull it off anymore. And at a certain age, you no longer know if the kids are wearing something, ironically, or not. And I get w- it now. When we were all children, the, our, our proverbial mothers, when we would make a silly face, they would say, 
if you keep making that face, the wind's going to change and it's going to get stuck like that. That's not necessarily true, but I'll tell you this. If you keep doing something ironically, then eventually you'll just be doing it. <laughs> yeah. If you have a silly mustache ironically, guess who's just going to have a silly mustache? Yeah. If you use like ironic slang or like an affectation and you do it long enough, then you're going to forget that it's you're doing it ironically. It's just going to become you. Yeah. Now that's a big one for me. That's yeah. a big problem for me. <laughs> the ironic slang just becomes who I am. It is a big problem. But... You know, I really do think jumping off of that theory, I really do think millennial media hits its stride in the early 2000s. And there is a programming block that had a chokehold on my life from like 2006 to like 2018. <laughs> it had mm -hmm. an absolute like stranglehold. 2018 is probably too late to like 2014. It had like a stranglehold on my Thursday nights. And that was the NBC Thursday must see TV lineup. Mm -hmm. Baby, this is the lineup that gave us the office. It gave us 30 rock and it gave us parks and recreation. And I lived and died by this lineup. And these are three of the like core millennial texts. These are like chapters one, two, and three of our Bible. Yeah, absolutely. Fun fact. So we're, we're younger millennials. You're the only person in like our cohort, like people around our age that I can think of. And I remember thinking of this all the time that was like beholden to TV, like airing schedules because the most of us were like post that like, we'll catch it on Hulu. It didn't exist at that time. Like, 2008 it did. Like, by the time we met, it did. And that you were like, we are going to watch it on Hold Thursday. On. When did The Office start airing on Hulu? This, is, it, this actually is important on when you could start watching things the day later. Yeah. Uh, Hulu is 2007, so I don't know. Hulu became into existence in 2007. Yeah. Hulu's initial thing, a lot of people probably don't know this. Hulu's initial thing was actually, that's the service it sold. It was not like you could just stream any episode of anything you wanted at any given time. Hulu's initial value prop that it was selling was if you miss an episode, like when it airs live, you can pick it up on Hulu the next day. And like for a period of time after it airs, you can pick it up on Hulu. That was what they initially sold. Yeah. Um, but they also had like every network had these shitty websites that you could go on to usually the next day. And um, it would take you like 10 minutes to load the website. But you could watch the next day the website with commercials. I feel like I'm like vaguely recalling like the, the way those browsers looked. Yeah. It was awful. They were always just absolute dog shit. What a time, what a space. Yeah, no, I think I was super beholden to those schedules because, like, I did not have my own computer until I was, like, well into college. Yeah, didn't you have, like, a really shitty computer? You had like, a laptop. Once, once I went to college. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a laptop, and that laptop lasted me a long time. Shout out to Asus. That forever. She was, like, 12 pounds. Yeah. And she would not die. You had a desktop. Yeah, I was the only person that brought in like a desktop ass computer with like a giant like public library monitor <laughs> that 
Yeah, you absolutely did. And you were nowhere near the rest of us in terms of like the, well, you were a floor above or two floors above. Yeah, But yeah. still, we were like all like right there. And but yeah, you just had to play Sims 4 on <laughs> Melissa's computer. Yeah, it, good times. Good times. <laughs> but yeah, so we, we have the Holy Trinity. And I think a couple of things are really unique about these shows and really altogether millennial. One, we talked about it actually a little in the Gen Z episode, so maybe it's not altogether millennial. But all of these shows came out in the early 2000s, between 2005 and 2010. And they are all workplace comedies. This is also coinciding with the time that millennials are entering the workforce. The older millennials. We're really young. We're baby millennials. And so we were not yet in the workforce, but almost all of our millennial cohort we're and entering the workforce. The audience at home, take a shot every time Jessica and I try to remind you that we're young. We're young millennials. We're not like those other millennials. We could have been Gen Z. We were so <laughs> close. If my mom had just crossed her legs. But alas, here we are. And so these are workplace comedies and millennials themselves were just entering the workplace. And I think The Office is altogether specifically meant to be from something of a millennial perspective or at least a very young person in a very not young office yeah it gets a little messy to call these shows like millennial properties because it was a very diverse age group of like the cast and they were enjoyed by i'm sure absolutely enjoyed by gen x and boomers and so we're talking about these shows through the lens of millennials because millennials that's what this have adopted is. the office as their own the office we have claimed it it is a requirement that if you're a millennial if you are a millennial then you are required to put on your dating profile uh, i like the office yes um yes Parks and Rec 2, it's ours. We took it. I think the questionable one is probably 30 Rock. But I say it's ours. Yeah, it's pretty millennial. We'll get to it. These are three shows that are about, like, in the professional setting. 30 Rock and Parks and Rec are about highly upwardly mobile, like, very successful in their field professionals. The Office, is a little less. The Office is, like, very much, like... It's just like woven from the fabric of charming mediocrity, I would say. But 30 Rock is like, she's a high-flying uh, television She's producer. living the dream. Like, she's Jack Donaghy's protege. Yeah, Jack Donaghy, who is like one of the main characters for sure, like has tons of screen time. He was definitely on the Epstein Island. They uh, are very <laughs> successful people. And so... What does that say about millennials that we like, we grasped onto these shows? So I think 30 Rock, honestly, I think all three of them we grasped onto for very different reasons. And I, I think they can all be related back to, to work, right? Mm -hmm. But I think we grasped onto them for very different reasons. I agree, yeah. And The Office, I think we grasped onto as like, we are young people attempting to navigate a world filled with people older people generally who do not see the world the way we see the world and they act very problematically that is michael's whole bag right is that he acts very problematically throughout the course of the entire show 
Um, let me ask you, is there a term besides Mexican that you prefer? Something less offensive? Mexican isn't offensive. Well, it has certain connotations. And by gay, I mean, um, you know, not in a homosexual way at all. I mean the, uh, you know, like the bad at sports way. Stanley, how about that hot picture you have by your desk? Centerfold in the Catholic schoolgirls outfit? I mean, it is hot, it is sexy, and it turns him on, and I will admit. That is my daughter. She goes to Catholic girls' school. Oh, well, you know what? Nobody cares about your stupid beet farm. And we often get looks to the camera from Jim, from Ryan, the younger cohorts, right? Looking to the lens saying, like, you see the shit that I have to deal with. You see these people. And I think there are two interpretations we could go for here as it comes to the office and millennials. One, I think, is the charitable reading, which is the office is very much a show born of the financial crisis and the financial collapse that happened in 2007. So the office started before then. I'm aware of this fact, but I do think it is representative of this. In what way? In the sense that in the office, there is a sense of like hopelessness and powerlessness among virtually everyone in that office. We are trapped here, right? With very little other options. It's representative of millennials who are joining the workforce at a time when jobs are scarce. So they don't have a lot of power. They're probably the oldest cohort of millennials. So there's not like there's a lot of other millennials there that they can band together with and share that cultural identity. They're that first wave of folks joining the workforce in a time of financial crisis when many people are being laid off and there are not a lot of options. So there is like a powerlessness of all I can really do here is recognize the problematic behavior happening around me, but there is nothing I can really do to change it or to solve the problem. And so I'm just going to sit here and be party to it. Uh, and I think it's just, that's a one way of reading it. I think a perhaps generous reading of like the millennial lens of the office. So I agree that is one lens that you can take it through. Uh, it's just... We're entering the workforce uh, during the recession and just like we're coming out of a childhood of optimism and then the bottom fell out of the economy just as we're coming of age. And so we're like in, we were raised as optimists and we ended up in this just stifling mediocrity. And we are incredibly critical of um a lot of the institutions, but we don't, we can't really do anything about it. We just don't make up enough of a voting block. Um, important thing, I think, to think about, like, to, to frame, we talked about like how Vietnam helped uh, frame the uh, boomers' understanding of the world and politics, and a little bit about how Gen X. Um, like in the uh, post-Cold War era, um, it, it framed like the outlook. Um, the millennial version of that, I would describe in this way. And Jessica, you can tell me if you co-sign this as a, another millennial. It, we were about 11, 12 when 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. And 
what I recall about the time immediately after is that there was this extremely oppressive, mandatory patriotism that you would see a lot of like performative, one must be patriotic. And, you know, in the South, I think it's probably much more acute. Mm-hmm. Randomly, they would play along with the national anthem. They would be, they would just give us a surprise bonus round where they would play Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA. Just <laughs> for no reason, just like one, like every other week, they would just once do it like on a random Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. And just, if you're feeling a little frisky, we'll put a boot up your ass. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, I, hold uh toby keith single-handedly responsible for the iraq war Uh, (laughs) (laughs) if he hadn't written that song i don't think it would have happened Um, it wouldn't have gone this far yeah but tons of that of this mandatory patriotism and just as we were becoming of age where we were interested in politics patriotism and that like performativity was very transparently being used to justify something that largely millennials rejected, which was the, the word Iraq. And it put a sour taste in our mouth. And so then Obama came along and he was going to be this antidote to this cynicism and like lingering fascism of the Bush years and Obama, he was going to be hope. He was going to be everything. And then, yeah, I mean, there's like very famous videos, right. Of when Obama was elected of people being like, there's not going to be racism anymore. There's not going to be poverty anymore. He really did a number on us. Yeah. I was the cringiest have ever been in my life when Obama was elected. I really thought like, <laughs> folks, that about wraps it up for <laughs> roll credits. We I think it. we won. We won the game. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. Yeah. Stay classy, San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> and then things didn't get better. Um, really at all. Like Obama came into office during the deepest re- recession since the Great Depression. And it was a very stubborn recession. And two years after he was elected, like the biggest chuckle fucks that we had yet seen got elected into office and took over the house. And, you know, the government then was just paralyzed and couldn't do anything. And it's that quick turnaround of like optimism and then crushing defeat. I think for a lot of millennials, it was just this like fuck. (laughs) And I think it has a lot to do with this millennial ironic separation from things of like just we grew up around such a profound, insincere and manipulative way of using like patriotism that I think that it was a turnoff when we see certain things used in that way. And so I think that contributes to like sort of millennial irony. And then, like, optimism. Like I just said, I remember my optimism and hope as cringy. It's a very millennial, <laughs> like, thing. And I think that really informs things like The Office and our fascination with The Office. Of Jim being, like, this millennial hero of he is in the exact situation as all of these other people. But Jim believes himself to be better than these people. 
Yes. Drag he, millennials, girl. Yes. Yeah. We need. This is us. Drag us. It's this profound, like, anti-solidarity. It is, like, poison to any kind of solidarity of Jim is with all these other people. His struggles are the same as all these other people. But, like, he, instead of, like, identifying with them, he finds that too nauseating and too painful because he was always taught that he was going to be better than them. So I mentioned when I was talking about The Office that there are two lenses yeah. to view the millennial experience of The Office. I gave you the charitable one. Drag these bitches to filth for the very not charitable one. Yeah, it, it's the Jim didn't age well <laughs> effect of Jim is with like these objectively amazing people. Like you well, sort of love these people. Yes, there there are a lot of great people in that office. They're also like sexual offenders, <laughs> like whatever the and fuck like Creed is up deeply to. Deeply racist. Oh yeah, I, I wasn't even thinking deeply about Michael. Deeply sexist, misogynistic. Yeah, like, I wasn't even thinking about Michael, but there are others. But for like his coworkers, so many lovely people. Like Kevin didn't do anything to anybody. Yeah, but he. Instead of like having a solidarity for the struggles that he sees in the office of like his often quite abusive boss, instead of doing anything about it, he has this ironic detachment where he'll like look to the camera. And to me, this is mind poison, like that I had to like train myself not to do of like internally panning to the camera and like can you believe this shit to a non-existent audience look everyone if you catch a millennial looking in the mirror it's possible they're checking their reflection but most likely they're doing an office can you believe this shit yeah of just like an imaginary main character syndrome of like Bitch, you are a salesman in this office like every motherfucker. You filled out the W-2 forms like everyone else. You are in that office. I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. Jim. You're in the office. But he's ironically detached. Yeah, and so it's this imaginary, it's this patented phrase, the fuck, what did I say it was? It wasn't consolidation prize. Now I can't even remember what my wrong thing is. Compensation prize. Compensation prize. Yeah, it's the millennial compensation prize of actually, I'm aware that this is all bullshit. And I'm actually very clever for recognizing that. So I'm not going to do anything about it. Exactly, right? It's it very much is like applying the lens that I mentioned earlier of like, we've consumed so much media at this point as millennials that we are aware of the tropes. Right. The same shit applies to other cultural contexts outside of like media. So we're yeah, we're aware that this corporate system is bullshit, but we're also not going to do anything about it. But we want you to know that we know and that's enough. And that's the millennial ethos. And it's captured, like completely distilled into the office. I think also like 30 Rock is aware of this and I think comments on it a lot in Mm -hmm. his lemon. Like that is Liz's whole bag is just like trying to do the right thing and recognize that something is wrong, but ultimately failing horribly. Um, yeah. But I mean, it might not even be millennial. It might be more Gen X because I truly believe that the millennial ethos is like to not do anything and say that it's because you cannot 
but it's really because you just won't. Yeah, I think that this is important. The Gen X to millennial comedy transition of like high cynicism in Gen X and like celebrating cynicism as being the intelligent perspective. And then like, so what do, are you getting when you get to the office and like having that transition? I think that it is a skepticism coupled with trying like a, a real desire to find humanity. Also true. Because the office is, at the end of the day, very empathetic to these characters. Like Jim, as a character, I love he think he's an asshole. But the office, it, it, it is about like a found family. And like these people developing relationships over time. And so I think that is the development of you start getting in this time period, much more nuanced comedy that is both deconstructing tropes and deconstructing like institutions, but also wanting to build something, some kind of optimism. You get, for example, We've talked about The Office. Parks and Rec is also an interesting one to look at. Heavily informed by the Obama years and that mm -hmm. optimism. Amy Poehler is a, a very optimistic and like true believer in like the American project. And that totally comes uh, through in Parks and Rec. On its surface, it does seem to be like mocking democracy and like this... Incredibly, everyone in that town is stupid. Everyone in that town is stupid. The government itself is stupid and inefficient. And, you know, you can't even give a, get a fucking park built. But at the end of the day, it is still very optimistic about the goodness of people. So I think that would be a, a millennial theme that you get to see in a lot of comedy is high skepticism of institutions and a lot of faith and warmth towards individuals and people. You also get a lot of a phrase that we use a lot, a refusal to dehumanize. The two different extents and different, different creators, different writers, but there is Dan Harmon, his shtick often is to give a surprising amount of humanity to what would normally be a bit part. And that is, again, this like deconstructing postmodern take on comedy of just giving humanity to the stock character archetype. The Office also does that. Surprising humanity, I, I guess you could put up as a theme for millennial humor. Yeah, absolutely. A, a turn to more character-driven comedy, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah. And an interest in other people, right? I, like I said, I, I think it partially comes from, again, our consumption, our heavy consumption of all other media prior to when millennials started to really be engaging with media. And, like, I think it is the natural progression from like the boomer heavy on the heart but low on depth to the gen x like heavy on the depth low on the heart and a lot of low on heart low on depth too let's be real to like a balance between the two yeah i think that's good uh, that's a good way of putting it 30 it, 
That's why I think that I, I would put 30 Rock as a Gen X show. Because it's hard Rock, to categorize. It's thir- really right in between. Yeah. Because 30 Rock has a lot of like, to its core, it is very skeptical. It, like a very cynical show. Twins it's an incredibly wanna... cynical show. Yeah. yeah. It's but, so tough, but it does also have like so much character driven depth to it. And there is mm-hmm. like some millennial like random humor era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so random. Yeah, which is a good transition, I think, that we should do a little side poll and talk about how around the same time the landscape and the industry of television is making another major change. We've already referenced it a little bit with things like Hulu and the shitty network websites that you could go on and eventually watch one of their episodes. And also DVD box sets. DVD box sets were very important for sitcom history. (laughs) Yes. I such a fun, special little place in my heart for DVD box sets. I do too, but specifically because of you and it being like a, a, like a profound sensory memory of just like stale liquor that's been soaked into the carpet in uh, the dorm room. And then like, I'm on the floor and I'm just flipping through your legendary binders of sitcom box sets. Yeah. You're just like, what disc of Seinfeld am I pulling out tonight? I was lost in the sauce on DVD box sets. They were so Um, expensive. Yeah. I spent a lot of like my first paychecks of my first jobs. The first thing I ever bought with like a real paycheck was I went to, I worked in the mall at the movie theater, Cinemark Movies Town, the best seat in town. And when I got my first real paycheck, I went to the FYE store, which was like a movie CD media store. And they had a used DVD section and I bought all of the X-Files, not all of them, but with the first paycheck, I got the first season of the X-Files on DVD used, baby. But that then I just like got those and it was often like a Christmas present to me. What would my mom would do is she would get like a couple of seasons for me or maybe even sometimes like a whole series for me on DVD and then we'd watch it together over Christmas break, just like back to back. Like I have all the 30 rocks. And so I have sensory memories of like Christmas morning, I'd get 30 rocks season three on DVD. And then for the rest of Christmas break, mom and I would just sit there like disc after disc. We just watch all of the 30 rocks together. Yeah. Such good memories. I loved the DVD box set. Such a fun little place in my heart. Yeah. And these are like two... I would say that there are two continental shifts that happen because of these ways that you can now consume sitcoms. The first is that the advent of binge watching, just like you described, came into being. Like you couldn't really, unless there was like a marathon happening, which I have a lot of memories of just like, like melting into the couch and like absolutely but you had to hope that they would play it in order because sometimes nick and i's throwing a marathon on and you were going to get season two then you're going to get season 11 yeah and they had no respect four. they did not give it a shit like they hit the random like shuffle button before yeah. there was a shuffle button baby <laughs> like they, they were like you you ready for sitcom roulette because that's what you're about to get. Like, it'd be one episode, and then the very next episode would be, like, a part two of an oh, episode fuck, that they yeah. did not play a part one for. Why did, why'd y'all do that? <laughs> <laughs> why did networks never just play them 
I would have loved uh, it if it I was- hope it was just somebody like cunty in programming who was like, hope you enjoy it. And just yeah. like played what they wanted. Yeah. Shuffle, bitch. <laughs> or like just some very well-meaning but nervous intern like dropped the tapes. No, no. Like, oh, no. Oh, no. What a wacky situation. <laughs> But yeah, you could binge watch like out of order marathons. That would happen. But to like truly properly mainline a sitcom in order that first came with like DVD box sets. And then with streaming, of course, that's everybody's aware of just like new show comes out and you just watch it in a weekend. And then like Mm -hmm. you show up to work, you haven't even taken a shower. Yeah, and uh, that was very much when streaming first came out. But it did, it changed the ways that shows and sitcoms were created and made. Yeah, so binge watching and then just the ability to rewind and like watch at your leisure, really, it and rewarding like paying attention in ways that you really couldn't. If you're just like watching it on cable, let's see a TiVo. And, which is how you got shows like Arrested Development and Community, mm-hmm. which are shows that had a lot of like background gags and like recurring. Arrested Development was big on like running gags and just like putting blue paint anywhere to like as a joke that fuck what's his name Tobias had been there because he was in the Blue Man Group. Just a million different things. You're making media where like continuity can be rewarded continuity can be rewarded and it's like rewarding that sort of like culty the close watching yeah the close watching and we had seen in the previous era there being like this targeted demographic with like age groups and ethnicities but you were getting something new in the 21st century now of really I guess, I don't know what you would call it of, like, if you get it, things, because you could just do this targeted thing and make a good product and just sort of hope that the people would find you. Whereas before, um, when you had to cater to much larger audiences, you really needed, it needed to be a bit more vanilla, but you could get a lot more experimental now. And that's like a big, major shift. Sitcoms were invented, uh, like what we think of as like the stereotypical sitcom format, three act structure, like the that set up like a stage play, all those sorts of things. These were created for the like by necessity for what a sitcom was, you know, for like uh, network television. And so mm-hmm. as the context of that was falling apart, suddenly the need to have these tropes started to fall apart as well. And we get uh, more experimental stuff, like hour-long comedies like Glee. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely think that, like that thirst and interest for something new and different as the sort of structures of basic commercial television fell apart that's also why you get a lot of these comedies we didn't even talk about it a lot of these shows that we just listed here not only feel very different in the sense of like the type of comedy that that we're doing structurally they're different in the sense that like these are mockumentaries 
for the most part. And if they're not mockumentary, and even if they are, these are often very single camera sitcoms. Gone are the day of a three camera sitcom with a set of like one to two primary filming locations for the episodes. These are single camera, single camera shows for the most part. Yeah. Not necessarily gone as the day. They they were still around. Of course, you know, how I met your mother. Well, how I met that? your mother. Yeah. We have not talked about how I met your mother, but also seminal millennial television show. Yeah. Big Bang Theory also. Big but Bang Theory for sure. It's going the way of the dodo. I can't imagine that the three camera sitcom is gonna be alive and well in like twenty years. Yeah, I'm trying to think of one that like neighbors recently. The neighbors I hear is doing well. Yeah, we had Big Bang Theory. We had How I Met Your Mother. And I'm not sure, are do you feel like either of them are worth exploring further? Or do we want to move on? Uh so I was trying to figure out like what my take was, like what their importance is. And Specifically, and I kept like thinking about how does it relate to Friends, which is a natural comparison for the earlier generation. And I was trying to think of like what would be like an even earlier iteration of it, like in previous eras. And it's hard to figure out like what the thing would be. And I think it's partly for this reason that television is often, maybe not intentionally, but just like as a function of being something that is going to always be under scrutiny it um, can often be have this instructive role or like selling a certain lifestyle this is it has a lot to do with like advertising and advertisers are always trying to like market to specific demographics and they want there are things that they want to be associated with and there are things they don't want to be associated with and this has a big impact on the kind of content that gets created and the upshot of this is there is this gravitational pull towards like promoting certain lifestyles and the family sitcom all of those family sitcoms that we think of the boomer era, they were there to sell dish soap and like to like housewives and, you know, they're like washing machines and, you know, and later to sell to upwardly mobile urban youth and like, and like professionals and stuff like that. Like it's all marketing. And so the era of the family sitcom is to sell this lifestyle of the suburban living where the model for consumerism is buying things for your house, buying things for your family. Um, and that when it comes to Gen X and um, even more uh, with millennials, this new kind of lifestyle was developing where marriage was being delayed more and more, having children was being delayed more and more. And so because there was this childless unmarried period that was getting longer and longer, the advertisers needed to sell to them. And therefore there was a, more of a demand to have shows that spoke to that kind of lifestyle. And so you would get friends, and then you would get things like the Big Bang Theory, and you'd get Married with Children. These are all shows that are urban shows. They are shows with upwardly mobile youth, just like aspiring. They're all climbing the corporate ladder or uh, whatever their career trajectory is. They are moving on up. They're very optimistic shows. 
and they're to just speak to that market demographic. And it's hard to find a comparison for earlier generations because it wasn't necessarily there as much. Yeah. Look, I know I can always count on you to tell us what they were selling. <laughs> Who was selling what to what kind of bitch in what decade? Zach's going to know. Zach's always got the demographics. <laughs> I do think that those two shows, How I Met Your Mother and The Big Bang Theory, are also representative of other trends that are happening at this point in time uh, that we'll also see, I think, stretch into the 2010s as we start talking a little bit about the 2010s. One, the cool nerd. So the Big Bang Theory is all about the cool nerd, which had a huge moment as millennials were coming of age. So as millennials were coming for age, of age, this was also the rise of Silicon Valley and the rise of tech and startup culture and the idea that sitting in a dark room and being on your computer 24 seven was actually a mechanism towards, you know, great financial wealth in the future, right? These are the new jocks, right? So there was this question in society in the early to mid 2000s of like, is this the new cool kid is the guy who knows how to code? And so you get the rise of the cool nerd that happens with the Big Bang Theory because of what is happening with tech and with Silicon Valley around this period of time. And I do also think both of these shows serve to try to sell us a new type of masculinity, the millennial man's masculinity. Soft boys. Soft boys that are no less toxic. Yeah. Um, we just take all the most toxic parts of like possessive misogynistic masculinity and we just make it so he don't have muscles anymore. This is what you want, millennial? Yeah. There is a great video essay by pop culture detective called The Adorkable Misogyny of the Bank Big Bank Theory that totally check out, I'll put it in the show notes that really unpacks like the misogyny of the big bang theory and like the particular way that they smuggle it in there of just because penny is coded as being of a higher sort of like social strata as far as her being attractive and cool and the nerd characters are coded as being like of a lower social status in a way but that's all just the facade because you know, all the nerds, they make significantly more money. Penny is, you know, a waitress at the Cheesecake Factory. And they are incredibly objectifying to all of the women on the show. And, but it's just like camouflaged because of this very superficial way of coding the characters as being of, they're nerds and therefore of a lower social strata. And therefore we find their misogyny more tolerable. Yeah, I mean, I think the same can be said of How I Met Your Mother, right? Because mm -hmm. Ted is, quote unquote, the nice guy, right? We see his behavior of, you know, the one of the episodes we watched to prepare for this, the pineapple incident, right? Because Ted is, quote unquote, our nice guy. He's, he's good. He, no, he really loves Rob and he loves women. We're supposed to just, like, find his behavior of calling her 
to the point of harassment over and over while he's drunk and she's out on another date charming in an act of someone who is experiencing unrequited love and so of course he should make another girl that he slept with crawl out a window because he loves robin and that's fine yeah i I think it's the same exact thread that flows through both yeah would love to do an episode like actually deep diving in a little bit more of like the like the soft boy oh yeah it I think that you can put this as the result of the rise of what I'm going to cringe and call wokeism of, you know, millennials. We lived through like the, we have, we have memories of a pre-woke period and we saw the transition to like the more like woke, hyper-aware social justice politics era. And, and we were of course like part of that and, you know, call that culture and all that. What, so I think that, there is this interesting evolution of where millennials are more, we're, we're more like savvy consumers of media and like aware of certain critiques of uh, misogyny. And so the sort of like evolution had to happen in order to like to keep the misogyny <laughs> of, and tapered over it. And so you got, like I talked about the Big Bang Theory thing. And then also just like the really, like really selling the niceness of the guy. And right. just like, he really just means well. And really, he's just, you know, he's he's just a little fellow. He's just a little boy. He's a little boy and he's, he's having a hard time out there. <laughs> and that's why he objectifies women and like watches them through their window and shit. Yeah, exactly. It's just this complicated arms race of wokeism versus just misogyny where it's this tango through time that you have to do you you change your strategy yeah you know it's like when your dog gets wise to the fact that the pills are in the cheese Mm -hmm. you gotta put the pills in the peanut butter yeah (laughs) and then once he realizes that the pills are in the peanut butter you gotta wrap them up in a marshmallow you just gotta stay one step ahead yeah, misogyny's got to stay one step ahead of the woke. Let's, you know what? I think now is a good time to introduce the world to what I am going to go on record and say is what I believe to be the most millennial sitcom. Hold on, before we do that, I wanted when we were just talking generically about the '90s and our childhood, I wanted to ask it you this, the but then 90s. it got away. Jessica, okay. what is like? So cable was gave us lots and lots of options as what to watch in the nineties. And yes. you and I have talked extensively about a lot of the shows that we love. What would you say is your deepest cut of like a show that you consistently watched in the nineties just because it was on? Deepest cut. The deepest cut or just like an out of pocket thing that you were like really into. Surprise me. Try to surprise me. Okay, so there was this show that would come on. I don't even know if I know the name of it. But it's a show that would come on. It was not hosted by Al Borland, but it was hosted by an Al Borland type. And in the episode, he would give you like three incredible stories. 
And then you had to guess at the end of it, like which one was fact and which one was fiction. Truth or fiction? Are you saying, yeah, truth or fiction? It's on the sci-fi channel. Is that what it was called? Yeah. Yeah, I love that shit. It was the guy on Star Um, Trek. Yes, that's who it was. Yeah, it's that meme you've had to have seen it on tiktok it's posted all the time yeah, and where, all like, it's just him. yeah it's just him coming with the intros ever go on mountain biking what do you want to be when you grow up what's the right tip have you called a plumber to your home lately how superstitious are you how much money would it take to make you spend a night in a cemetery would you display this as a trophy do you have a pet do you have a sweet tooth do you believe in the power of a curse have you had your hearing tested lately planning a trip soon can you remember the tallest man you've ever seen? Do you love to go a-wandering beneath a clear blue sky? Have you noticed what big stars real estate agents have become? Are you careful with your personal records? Does your computer ever seem to have a mind of its own? Have you ever visited a Chinatown section in a major city? Have you ever had a dream that that you um you had you 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 could you do you you want you you could do so you you do you could you you want you want him to do you so much you could do anything my family loved that shit we watched it every sunday while cleaning and like occasionally like it will flash in the back of my mind and it's how i know that they like hooked plants up to lie detector thing and like plants can like be impacted by like the music you play i remember it because of one of those i feel like if the internet had existed when that was on it would have been fact checked hard Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There had to have been shit that was not correct. Yeah. It would have been fun to write on that show. Oh, tell you it what. would. Yeah. Like, that's awful. That would have been a good ass time. But we were also talking about at work the other day that there was also like a cultural moment that happened in like the late 90s, early 2000s that consisted of Seventh Heaven, Touched by an Angel, and the Chicken Soup for the Soul books that were all just like in the same genre. Left Behind, the Left Behind series as well. Oh, the Left Behind series was right up in that shit. Uh, <laughs> what a time for Christian fiction. Yeah. We all just ate it up, unironically. Yeah, it was just, Touched by an Angel was so good. I fucking, <laughs> it's going to eventually be our Patreon content. Love Touched I by an Angel. I fucking loved, oh, fuck, what was the actress's name? Dolores? Dolores? Heavy burden, And then there was the Irish angel. Yeah, to open your heart to Jesus. <laughs> My favorite one, this is officially becoming our teaser for our eventual Patreon content, is my favorite episode. I watched it like a month ago. And it's the episode where they were addressing the hot topic of that lamb that got cloned in the 90s. And uh, um, yeah, Dolly. Yeah, the opener, the cold open was the Irish angel was just like cuddling a lamb. And then Delores is like, you like that lamb? You think that lamb's cute? You think that, that lamb's godly? What if I told you it was made in a lab? <laughs> and then like drama music. And then the Irish. What if I told you that lamb did not come out of a lamb pussy? <laughs> what if I told you that? You wouldn't download a lamb. <laughs> and like in the climax of it, this uh, the scientist who can't have children she wants to clone she has a dna sample of albert einstein and she's like in front of like the cloning machine and she's and the irish angel has to be like don't do it 
think of all the expectations that will be placed on the child. And then she's like, no, I guess I'm going to be a Christian now. You know, it really is wild because, like, look, we are still a very Christian nation. Christians still get a lot of special privilege. But there will never be a moment like there was where we just were all watching Touched by an Angel, Seventh Heaven, and read The Chicken Soup for the Teenage Soul. They never had it so good. They had us if they had just played their cards right. Yeah, we were all backs up against the wall. But then you were all just like, kill the gays. And like, you were so close, Christians. Yeah. you had, Like, we were there. We had made like a picnic in the middle of like your like rope trap. And like, we were just there watching TV, ready for the trap to be sprung. But you didn't spring it. <laughs> yeah. If you had dropped like three more bangers after Touched by an Angel in Seventh Heaven, that would have been like, we'd have been eating out of the palm of your hands. Yeah, I would be like a youth pastor in Ohio right now. Yeah, collectively, <laughs> nationwide, lattes would not be as good. <laughs> like, all the girls, the gays, and the theys would have been at Sunday service. Yeah. You my, were so my close. My wife, Dorothy. You almost had us. You almost had us. I also loved Hollywood Squares in the 90s. Never got into Hollywood Squares. <laughs> it was not made for me. Yeah. That shit was not made for me. But talk about Whoopi Goldberg. She was running the oh, board on Hollywood Squares. Absolutely, yeah. I, one sad thing that I really like British like chat shows. I don't know if you're like familiar with them, like Would I Lie to You? Where essentially it's just like their version of like cheap television where they'll get a bunch of celebrities to, like sit around and play like a parlor game. Yeah. Much like, I mean, I'm a big Taskmaster fan. Yeah, so. Taskmaster, Would I Lie to You, that sort of thing. Worst week ever. And I, I've just said that we, for some reason, our celebrities, they just don't want to do that. It, or, like, networks don't want to make it. But I'm sad that, like, Hollywood Squares didn't create a renaissance of, like, <laughs> chat shows. Yeah, it could have been. We could have had the match game, you know? Oh, the match game. Yeah, okay. So... Let's move on. I would like to move on. And I would like to talk about what I believe to be the most millennial show to ever millennial. Who's that girl? It's Jess. Mm. New girl. New girl. I think it, it had, it's a petri dish with a lot of different like millennial things in it. It has the most millennial moment I've ever seen on television. Hit me. It is peak millennial. So. In this episode, Jess, played by Zoe Deschanel, the millennial manic pixie dream girl. She plays Jess. She's a teacher. She just got a job at this new school. And she's not really fitting in with the new teachers. So she gets really drunk and becomes their best friend somehow. I don't know. I was cleaning. I missed it. And then when the teachers kind of give her the keys to the kingdom and say, you're now one of us, you're friends with us. They open up a locked cabinet of mugs and Jess pulls out a mug and she puts it to her lips and she said, I love this one because when I drink out of it, it makes me look like I have a little mustache and painted on the mug God. was a little mustache. That's our real millennial gray. <laughs> I submit to you the most millennial moment that has ever happened in a sitcom. Yes, Absolutely. The tiny mustaches were the... That's the real millennial gray. You're absolutely yeah. right. 
it's just like the, the nexus of that like piece of culture is like the gift table at urban outfitters so oh my god circa 2009 <gasps> that's where Listen. you would you would really stock up on your mustache sticky notes and oh yeah oh <laughs> and yeah everything millennial cringe was there everything millennial grid oh my god if if somebody from gen z could be transported to an urban outfitters circa 2007 Dead. i think they'd i think they would die i like, think they would die their eyes would roll so hard that it would just like fall they'd fall out of their heads <laughs> <laughs> like they would die of embarrassment yep i think i uh, would embarrassed for us because yeah, i remember as they should i remember standing so at that table it. being like <laughs> <laughs> these are bacon so much for it oh my god shit my dad says stuff white people oh my like. god oh my god yeah we did we did and it was all like 60 dollars yeah all of it <laughs> the whole table and yeah, I mean, honestly, if you're a millennial who got the mustache tattooed on your finger, I think you're entitled to compensation now. I think there are those um, like charitable tattoo parlors that will like remove tattoos from like ex-felons or whatever. Um, yeah, or like you got a Harry Potter tattoo, they'll take care of you. Yeah, yeah, those mustaches. They should be doing. They should be doing the mustaches. Be a government. You are, yeah, you are entitled to compensation. It's not your fault. Yeah. It's not your fault. We all thought we were Zoe Deschanel. It's not your yeah. fault. L- listen, millennial gray is not our fault, but the mustaches that we, we have to take that the squarely on are, the chin. That's us. <laughs> that's us. We did that. It is our fault, but it's not your fault. You were all, we were all caught up yeah. in a moment. You have to have been there, uh, folks. And the, it was the Great Recession. A first black president. <laughs> yes. It was a lot of yes. stimulus. But New Girl, I definitely think, gives us what is, I think, key to understanding millennials that I think, Zachary, gets lost in the, like, when we look back and talk at millennials, a lot of people don't talk enough about this, which is just, like, the heavy domination of hipster culture mm, yes. like we were just talking about like if mumford and sons was a person if mumford and sons was a television show it would be new girls yeah it, it was we've been like piecing it together as we've gone through this episode uh just like the detached irony the the like very like intertextual meta millennial thing and it's, it's like calling attention to tropes but also straight up doing the tropes and that's all new girl baby <laughs> absolutely absolutely that's all new girl they gave us the most millennial moment of all time and you know what i'm gonna take this opportunity to eat a little slice of humble pie for all my listeners in the gen x episode i don't know if it'll be in the episode or not I gave New Girl a lot of shit for, you know, Jess essentially being a manic pixie dream girl stereotype and a I'm not like other girls. And so while I do stand behind New Girl often upholding the like I'm not like other girls mentality, because it is very centered on this idea of like a girl who, you know, 
is better friends with boys than she is with girls and rejecting some of like the trappings of femininity in a lot of ways as icky in favor of like masculine approved traits that women should have it does new new girl does do this but i'm gonna take it back because i think it's slightly more complicated one i don't think jess is a manic pixie dream girl i take that back now i do think she has a little bit more agency she's not really an object in the show she is a protagonist she is meant to be like whimsical i think you and i get more hung up on this because she was like every hipster that we were in college with like dream girl yeah it's um, who it, everybody was just looking in the mirror and being like what can i do to make myself look more like zoe deschanel absolutely the rachel maddow yeah. glasses <laughs> yeah. i love that love that you call them rachel maddow glasses it's the only man on earth who's <laughs> gonna do that work work baby but yes, everyone was doing that. So I think there's like this twinge of resentment there. Oh, actually, I want to talk about Rachel Maddox glasses real quick. Because <laughs> this was a moment, like I saw history happen. And I feel like, like Cassandra at the bottom of the mountain. Like, <laughs> no, but I was there. I saw it. <laughs> because Rachel Maddow, she replaced uh, Keith Olbermann on MSNBC. She had those iconic chunky glasses. And um, which we would be like categorically so of that time period. But she she started it, baby, because she did it. And then suddenly, once Rachel Maddow made a big splash, all the news anchors suddenly, chunky black glasses, Chris Hayes. Okay, suddenly I need these glasses. <laughs> Everybody was getting the chunky glasses and then it swept America like storm. And it's all Rachel Maddow. I believe that in my heart. I... Love, love, love the world you live in where Rachel Maddow is like, did you see the shoes Rachel Maddow was wearing today? No, I think it was. I love it. It's just the world where it's like, Rachel Maddow was wearing tailored trousers. So I went out and got tailored trousers. Like, that's the world that's accurate. My thesis is that other news anchors copied her chunky glasses. And then <laughs> from there, it, it escalated. She's a trendsetter, and she doesn't get enough credit for it. That's all I'm saying. You know what? Absolutely, Zach. Absolutely. But I'm going to continue my apology to her with New Girl here and say that, like, I was actually quite impressed because to some extent, I think New Girl undoes some of the misogyny that we talked about with the Big Bang Theory. So there's an entire episode where Jess has to, like, confront her own misogyny that she holds against her friend Cece because Cece is a model. Which I think is, it was a very interesting episode. So throughout the course of the entire episode, it's called Models. That's in season two. Jess is really resentful of Cece because Cece is, has model friends and Jess doesn't like get along with the model friends. She thinks she's, they're dumb. And so they all go out for Cece's birthday and Jess is feeling left out, mistreated by Cece's friends. So she basically says to Cece, like, it's almost as though since you've become a model, you've gotten dumber. And I wanted in this episode, I went into this episode to be like, they're just going to fall into these tropes of dumb girls or, or like hot girls are dumb and nerdy girls reject being a model 
are actually smart and cool. And I thought this is where they were going. And then the resolution is you're not supposed to agree with Jess. Yeah. And Jess has to essentially Cece gets really drunk and Jess steps up to do her modeling gig for her. And she fails at it miserably. And it's like the first time I think I've ever heard on television of like modeling is really hard and it's a lot of work and effort to be pretty in the way that CC is pretty. Sorry. And were you not watching America's next top model? Because those girls were struggling. Okay. But that was a completely different situation. (laughs) That was a completely different level of unfucking hinged. And yeah, I watched America's next top model. Of course I watch America's next top model. Completely different level of unhinged. Yeah. Every episode at some point, Tyra Banks would like give a little lecture about how hard modeling was. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, because it is fucking hard. Yeah. And then like a girl who would be like 120 pounds, they'd be like, how's it feel to be a plus size model? Hmm. Um, and that was America's Next Top Model. This is the culture millennials were steeped in. You want to know why we're fucked up? Watch any episode of America's Next Top Model. Anyone. I don't have to, like, go pick a special one. Watch literally anyone. The things that they... It it really was, like, Squid Games. Like, with the point of... But, like, like, beautiful women. Yeah. I was just like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to throw you out of a helicopter. (laughs) And you're going to have to... And by the way, hope you haven't eaten. Yeah. Uh, so don't eat for two weeks. Then we're going to throw you off of a helicopter with a boa constrictor. And then that we're going to also push off the photographer and you're going to have to look beautiful and amazing and like stoic as you're falling. And then after we take the photos, we'll give you your parachute. Like, like that's America's <laughs> next top model. That's America's next top model. Watch anyone watch any episode. I don't even have to stay and select one. You will understand why millennial women are the way we are. We were raised on that shit. Yeah, but then we Ty- were born in it. But then Tyra came out in her bathing suit on her talk show with her cellulite and cried, and she fixed it. And she fixed fat phobia. She yeah. fixed the fat phobia she reinforced for years <laughs> yeah. and years and years. She fixed it just like that. If you also um, want to understand millennials. This is a chaotic episode. Ca- it never, we didn't stand a chance. It's triggering too many <laughs> memories. I also <laughs> want to say that I grew up during a time when the biggest loser was on the air and Carol and Ray would like come out with like a red child's wagon full of lard and be like, this is all the weight you lost. And it's just, like, raw fat. The Biggest Loser, like, again, to be, like, in the props department of The Biggest Loser, mm-hmm. like, every week was just an exercise to, like, visually represent yeah. it, how much weight was being lost in, like, more and more abstract ways. Yeah, absolutely. Just, like, here's 30 pounds of Fabergé eggs. <laughs> it's just, like... This is how many Stuart Littles it would take to make up how much weight you lost. You've lost half a Danny DeVito. <laughs> and that's why millennials are the way we are. But yeah, credit abounds to New Girl for, I think, challenging 
and one of the first times I've ever seen it in a sitcom challenging the idea that pretty women can also be very smart and modeling is hard. Oh. Literally had never seen it in a sitcom. Often incredibly sweet depictions of masculinity as well. I think they go out of their way to like really I think the I think you assume, oh, a girl with a bunch of men, we're gonna get into like the league situation where it's all about or like it's always sunny situation where it's all about like the woman needing to keep up with the men. But often New Girl's very much the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just a lot of plots about like men trying to connect emotionally with other men. The the famous you gave me cookie, I give you cookie. <laughs> like Exactly. Where he, he's trying to like, I want tell me how to be your friend. You gave me a cookie, I gave you a cookie. You gave me a cookie, gave you a cookie. Gave me cookie, got you cookie. You gave me cookie, I got you cookie, man. Gave me cookie, got you cookie. We're even. We're even, Schmidt. I mean, what do you want from me? What do you want, Schmidt? I've been racking my brain all day. I walked around the grocery store, man, for 45 minutes. I didn't know what to get you. Then I was thinking I was going to get you ramen, like we used to eat. But you probably eat like fancy ramen now with like figs in it. I don't know, man. You love me too much, Schmidt. And you picked the wrong guy. And when are you gonna get that from that giant head of yours? I'm just gonna let you down, man. Which is very sweet. You don't often get that of just like that that des- depiction of like wanting that affection a man depicting men wanting affection and connection with other men is you don't get a lot of that and yeah very sweet absolutely yeah so props to new girl i take it back what i said last week but it is still the most millennial television show and if you'd like to cringe really hard at what hipster culture was like in the like mid to late 2000s early 2010s i give you new girl feast feast upon it yep just uh and you will see if millennials were like a game of thrones house like our, our sigil would be doe <laughs> zoe de chanel like playing a ukulele yes like <laughs> yeah her purse is a lunchbox yeah absolutely that's exactly what it would be honestly like the last show i really want to talk about of this era and perhaps of like the end of the millennial like defining sitcoms. And I think it's actually like an interesting amalgamation of everything we talked about. I also think it's the beginning of perhaps the maybe like the one and only Gen Z sitcom, Modern Family. I find this hard to categorize as a gen. I'm curious what your take is on uh, putting Modern Family here. You go first then. What's your take? I think Modern Family is like a Frankenstein of types of sitcoms, right? So I do think it is like a return to a family sitcom that is trying to pull on all of the building blocks that you see in like the office and shows of like the early sort of millennial sitcom period, right? So it's a family sitcom, has a lot of heart to it. It's also clearly trying to, as it purports, like depict a more progressive, 
more modern view on family. I'm not saying it succeeds. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying it always succeeds, but it is purporting to do. And I think it captures the aesthetic of earlier millennial sitcoms in terms of mockumentary style, not necessarily a three camera sitcom. It's also searching for heart. And it's very much, we're going to do all of the tropes, but you and I all know that we're doing all of the tropes. We're giving you what you want in a new woke package. Yeah. I try, I pitched to you once to do an episode on the mockumentary sitcom and like trying to like have a take of like, what is the genre? Why is this genre? What function did it serve? Christopher Guest was, he's made tons of your favorite movies. Literally like mine. Yeah. yeah. Waiting for Guffman is my favorite movie. And where he would just do mockumentaries. And then at The Office, of course, made everybody wanted to copy The Office. And then Parks and Rec, lots of like talking to the camera. And like what, we decided that it couldn't carry an entire episode, this topic. But if I were to quickly say what my take is on this, it would be that there was this, like, the mockumentary really, as a format, it encourages this kind of comedy that's like the gym thing of the not being fully present in the moment and constantly like undermining the people around you for comedy by talking to an audience. Everybody mm-hmm. gets to be, to kind of like make fun of somebody that gets to make fun of the people around them without like saying it directly to them. In many ways, uh, it solves the Dorothy in Golden Girls problem to the extent it is a problem that we've talked about before of like Dorothy saying just completely sociopathic things to Rose. That you just problem, say to the camera. Yeah, you can say anything you want to the fucking camera crew, and it's fine. If you never really, if they never really address what this documentary is, why would you follow this family around for 10 years or however long? I mean, do they ever address <laughs> it in Parks and Rec either? I don't think so. They did in the office where, like in the finale, yeah. didn't they? Yeah. It got weird. Yeah. In the office. They should have just left it hanging. It was just ghosts. (laughs) Yeah. But, yeah, so it's the gym thing of, like, this ethos of, I'm not fully, I'm not fully here. I, I am detached from this situation. And there is something... And, and that sort of like is a natural fit for a workplace comedy or a comedy that has like politics in it, like Parks and Rec, where you are often obliged to not say your true thoughts because it's your boss or you just want to be polite about like a political situation, that sort of thing. And <clears throat> but it's a weird to bring it into the family. Modern Family is a very popular show and wildly Mm -hmm. successful. So who am I to say that it has like a flaw like that? But there's a strangeness to it of these family members, like married people betraying utterly their spouse. (laughs) 
by just like fucking Cam that Mitchell like fat shaming the fuck out of his husband. Uh <laughs> like to a camera. And eventually won't Cam see this documentary, Mitchell? <laughs> Claire, won't eventually Phil see the shit you're saying about him? <laughs> Unless it's a sitcom and they're all trapped inside the sitcom. Yeah. It's just they're in hell. <laughs> that's like, and I actually don't think that's a bad lens by which to view Modern Family. Uh, it's a sitcom that is already aware of all the sitcoms that have preceded it. Mm-hmm. Right? So it is already couched in the fact that everyone in it is already aware that they're in a sitcom. So do you think this is like drawing on all of the eras of sitcoms which have preceded? This it is WandaVision. Yeah, is it do you think like the inner circle of Dante's Inferno? <laughs> Where, yeah, this yeah. is the layer that we just we we haven't heard of yet. Yeah. <laughs> Once That's you reach that layer, one. you're just in modern family. Yeah. Where like you don't have a single moment of peace. Like, and talking to the camera. Everyone is always constantly betraying you and saying the worst things that, like, your anxiety has conjured. Uh, for a national audience. Yeah, for a national audience. Everyone, the, the camera is always like, it's in your face. You, you never escape. Exactly. Which is very millennial. It's very social media. It's very like... It's very social media. Yeah. Which I think is like part of like what how the mockumentary, like there is a relationship to it because there is the... With social media, suddenly you have that imagined audience in your pocket and like you have this crowd that you are performing to and like I think we've all been in situations like where we have been in a conversation with someone and then like 30 seconds later, we make fun of them on social media. Like <laughs> this bitch just said, <laughs> like that yeah, kind of thing. Absolutely. And so we're absolutely. literally doing modern family. All yeah. The time. I mean, that's another potential theory is that like modern family is like a depiction of like when they're talking to the camera, that's social media, that's Facebook. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they like sat down and thought of it that way, but it's clear that's like why the mockumentary, I think, speaks to this particular audience. Like Christopher Guest was around for years before it got picked up by The Office. It was only like around the same time that social media was really picking off that the mockumentary suddenly became this big thing that everybody was trying to copy. Right. That's my take. Hot take. We love it. It's piping hot. Now... Do we want to say anything about millennials now? I think that the this series is really concluded. Like the series that we have done on generations. It's really concluded with the pandemic. Because when the pandemic hit, we all socially isolated and we all just ran into our own weird little like streaming holes and we all came out and then we all like had binged a show for two years that no one else has ever heard of and 
like since the streaming um era had like hit its peak and we were all just watching like things that were just made specifically for us and like 12 <laughs> other people <laughs> i think that's the epilogue of just millennials are no longer i don't know we dissolved into a million different sort of like media consumption locks and i don't think you can really find us in the data anymore for like specific show demographics now it's okay so to, i don't know maybe we're watching the crown that's millennial gray right there <laughs> <laughs> and blame us for the crown i think a good like illustration of what i'm trying to say is like on netflix they have this thing where like the algorithm will take a whatever data it's gotten about you and it will make a little thumbnail of the shows on your selection. Zach loves this shit. Yeah. It'll. And this is Zach playing the hits. Yeah. On the selection menu, it will show a thumbnail. And that thumbnail is made based off of your specific data. And so the same kind of shows are, I mean, the same shows are marketed hyper individualistically. So it'll. Like if I were to show you my Netflix page, it would have a, it would look completely different from yours, even if it's the same show. If there's a middle-aged yeah. woman, specifically a character actress in a Netflix show, it's going to show me her in like dramatic lighting. Like it's a character piece about that specific character actress. Yes. Yeah. Um, this is definitely a fact that like, was very interesting to read about when, like, the 2016 election happened. And even after that, like, um, there were a lot of, like, elder people, boomers, who did not understand that, like, what they see on the internet is, like, tailored to them and not what everybody else sees. Yeah. So they were like, why isn't the world enraged about Pizzagate with no understanding that it was just, like, specifically giving them that content because they keep clicking on Pizzagate shit. Yeah, it's just the algorithm. I'm the uh, To our Lord and Savior algorithm. Yeah, I love the way that like the concept of the algorithm, it is almost like spiritual. Like I will often not click on something because I don't want to fuck up my algorithm. And how crazy like cyberpunk is that, that? is so TikTok. Yeah. But just like so tiktok yeah like i don't want to i i will try to go past movies and like tv shows that have been clipped because i want to stop watching i want to stop tiktok from getting them to me even though yeah. i did want to watch them but your, your algorithm has to be cool in case someday someone looks at it and i can tell you what our shared algorithm got fucked so long ago yeah, it didn't know what to do. Like, we have the because it was on TikTok, and we both get on it, and we both will forget that we're on it, and just, like... And just, boop, boop, scroll. Inf yeah, influence the algorithm in two different directions, and it didn't know what to do with us. Uh, I think it, it really did seem to hone in on some kind of gender thing, because we got a lot of trans content for a long time. Yeah, really, <laughs> it... Again, it understood that maybe there's some conflict yeah. brewing within this account. <laughs> sometimes you seem to be a gay man. Sometimes you seem to be a straight woman. There's something going on here. Let's let's crack this egg. Uh, but look, there's only a hair of a difference between 
me uh, like what I like to watch and what gay men like to watch. This is true, except I I really like watching like lesbian homesteaders. I'm really into that, like aging lesbian beekeepers. Uh, There's no way that it thinks you're a gay man then. I think it was giving us like middle-aged lesbian content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my vibe sometimes. <laughs> that's for sure your vibe. It's <laughs> absolutely you. Uh, but then it would also like clearly you were on it because it had like the ADD dual screen of like, I'm going to be like crafting on one side of the screen and then I'm going to drop you into the middle of an obscure ass movie that is like less likely to get removed from TikTok. Um, <laughs> that's so fucking you. Yeah. It's- we should start doing that for our TikToks, just like doing crafts <laughs> while talking about it. I'm just going to get into like polymer earring making and we'll be golden. We'll do bad spaghetti. We'll do bad <laughs> cooking. Yeah, absolutely. That'll, that one requires no skill. So we'll do that one. All right. Anyway. So I think. Maybe this leads us to our button question. And we promised Gen Z content at the beginning of the series. So I'm going to ask you, if you had to nail down a sitcom, it got to be a sitcom. You had to nail down a sitcom and say it is the most Gen Z sitcom. What do you got for me? Okay. Uh, I'm going to interpret your question as like, what sitcom am I going to like try to sell to Gen Z specifically what they want to watch of like from sitcoms of all time and Gen Gen Z from what I've heard, you know, written in graffiti on the bathroom wall, like from all the cool kids, they're saying that Gen Z is very black pills is the term. Maybe, you know, they're very nihilistic. They're very, you know, nothing's going to get better. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to chill and vibe and so i am thinking of a little show that i used to watch at 3 a.m on pbs called waiting for god waiting for god was a show set in a british retirement home with some very old actors it was not old people makeup these actors there were only a few seasons and i think it's very clear why (laughs) and every other joke was them being like i want to fucking die (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> like, just throw me to the garbage <laughs> i've had an erection since the 70s and very black pill very perhaps zoomer so i would say check that out maybe it's your vibe zoomies all right all right what you, I, got? what you got i'm gonna go with broad city broad city okay uh, one the few zoomers in my life that i know personally really like it that's basically it okay i also just think it captures the vibe it captures the fashion it captures the attitude they're at that stage right now in their life that matches up with broad city it captures like the young adult friend group in a much more realistic way which i think also speaks to gen z ooze is cool excellent music broad city can i say fleabag is that allowed? Also a good choice. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're pulling it back. If I interpret it in the correct way, then I'll say Fleabag, I guess, even though that's not a sitcom. The crazy so, situations Fleabag's getting in every week. I mean, she is getting in some situations. She is. That's true. 
This is true. No one could deny she got herself into some situations. She got in the situations, that woman. <laughs> so if you're keeping score through our series, I said that the Er Boomer show was Family Ties. Gen X was Daria. Millennials is New Girl. And for me, Gen Z is Broad City. For Zach, it's Waiting to Die indoor flea bag. Yeah. Uh, what did I say? What I thought the boomers and Gen X were? Nope. I think he just agreed with me, but you might not actually believe that. What do you think? Uh, for go back. Give it a go. For boomers, I am going to say we go back to our boomer series mentally. Are yeah, you ready for that? Yeah. Going back, and I'm feeling through it. Boomers. What's the boomer show? I am going to say that it is Who's the Boss? I think it's a good cross-section. Love Who's the Boss. Yeah, Who's the Boss? Who's the Boss is just so underrated. Yeah, it's so good, folks. Love Who's the Boss. We gotta get back to it. It's like right there, that sweet spot of like boomers being like recognizable to us, but also having a lot of like their older influences in there, I think. So I'm going to say, who's the boss for Boomers? For Gen X, I'm going to say, I think this is controversial, I'm going to put that for Seinfeld. Uh, I knew you, I already knew you were going to say Seinfeld. Because it's that, like, disconnected from society. Yeah, I'm just completely separated from, like, society and highly cynical of it. And then for Millennials, I'm going to say The Office, because... If you didn't have a personality for about a decade, you could just put on... You could just like The Office. Yeah, you could just talk about The Office on a date, and you could really skate by until on The Office and Harry Potter all the way to marriage. Yeah, (laughs) you could get really, really far on those two things alone. Yep, and hopefully by then you thought, figured out what else you're going to see this person. You figured out a life. And then you have kids, and then you just talk about the kids. Yeah, and then you read Harry Potter. You get the kids really into Harry Potter. And, uh, the cycle continues. Yeah, that's the millennial way. J.K. Rowling really did fuck us over. Really fucked us hard. She really pulled a bait and switch on us, goddammit. So many people just have the fucking hollows tattooed on them. That is so tragic. Like... When I see that shit now, girl, I'm girl, so sorry. I'm sorry. You're entitled to compensation. You should. Like, if you get ta- like tattooed on you, like something, and then that celebrity like fucks up, you should be able to be like, sorry, you got to give me $50. Yeah. that I And that's why the only celebrity I, I ever will and do have tattooed is Dolly Parton. She's not going to let me down. You got you got Diane from Cheers. You got a uh... that's a character. A character can't let you down. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. I think we can safely say that we done did the millennials. And you know what? We don't get to just walk away from millennials. It will always be us. We'll always. I'll always. No matter what, uh, I will always have this linoleum gray floor because <laughs> <laughs> you can't paint that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and you'll 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 never be able to get rid of that mustache tattoo on your finger. Uh, yeah. No laser treatments can take that off. So I have a mustache because I got it on my lip. <laughs> we'll have we have all the Urban Outfitter 2007 gear. We have our skinny jeans, our side parts. 
We got it all. Yep. And thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. This was a three-parter, quite the journey of American history and stuff that we remembered. And (laughs) and don't forget to email us at becauseitwasonit at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from our listeners. And check us out on TikTok. Check us out on Instagram. Check us out on Threads. Check us out on... That's it. And That's it. Do those things. We also have a Patreon, and we would be honored if you yeah. gave us money. We'll read out a situation about you. Yeah, so we have weekly polls, weekly-ish polls. Weekly-ish, uh, we do you, our best. Where you can help influence what shows we will cover and what topics we will cover. And also, we will read you out when you first sign up and give you your own wacky situational comedy situ- thing. Absolutely. Bless ya. I hope you had a good holiday. This is going to come out like in February. So. so you get to choose what holiday we wished you a good one for. Don't forget to bundle up and stay warm out there. Take care. I love you. Because it was, because Bye. it was on. Because it was on. Because it was on. Because it was on. Because it was on, because it was on, rate, review, and subscribe to, because it was on. Whoop, 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 whoop.